one case that I really did well, there was an there was an 85 unit apartment building. The guy had a $4.5 million note on it. The bank put a receiver in place, right? So they put somebody in to take over the building, but this receiver was not a very good one. So he allowed the building to get stripped. It was on the south side of Chicago. You don't take care of something. The guys come in, steal all the copper. They, you know, they strip the place blind. And so now it was vacant. And another friend of mine who was a banker said, listen, I know what they'll take. If they need to get it off their books by the end of the month, off them 50K. They'll take 50K for the building, right? And I I was in Europe at the time. I called the broker and I said, listen, I'll give you 50K. And he was mad. He goes, no way I'm offering that. I go, you have to. You have to put that offer in. And he did. And they accepted the offer. Wow. Are you interested in learning more about owning your own portfolio, cash flowing rentals? If so, we invite you to take our free mini course, the Crash Course in Cash Flowing Rentals. When you take our mini course, you'll learn the strategies we use to build our portfolio. You'll also get to see several of our students featured who have successfully built their own portfolios as well. To take our crash course, link to semiretiredmd.com forward slash mini course, M-I-N-I dash C-O-U-R-S-E. Or visit our website at semiretiredmd.com and link to the crash course on cash flowing rentals there. You may also want to join the waitlist for our introductory course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals, while you're at our website too. We'll see you there. Have you ever dreamed of owning a vacation home? What if it could double as an investment property that makes you money and helps you save on taxes? Our new course, Accelerating Wealth Short-Term Rental Blueprint, will teach you how to purchase and set up your short-term rental the right way. Learn more about the course at semiretiredmd.com slash str hyphen course. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, a place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. another episode of the Doctors Building Wealth podcast. Today, Kenji and I are so excited to have John Rock. He is a real estate investor, um, a friend that I met through the Tony Robbins world and was just so impressed with some of the things he was doing in Chicago and how many units he had grown his portfolio to. We had to invite him here to share his story and give us some pointers on uh, how to grow a massive portfolio by yourself. So welcome, John. Thank you. It's good to be here. Looking forward to it. So, John, for those out there who are curious of what you've done and how you got where you are, could you tell us a little bit about your story, your real estate investing journey? Sure. Started out, I've probably been in the business for about 32, 33 years. I hate to say that and think how old I am at this point. But, um, you know, I started out, you know, when I was younger, my family owned an 18 unit apartment building. Back then, I was five years old, you know, and I still remember shoving coal into the boiler room you know, into the furnace. And so, and I can still remember that smell, but um, my parents, unfortunately, got divorced and they sold that property. And and as I got older, I think I started around, I was 27 years old. My father passed away and he left me $40,000 and uh, I didn't want to waste it. Mm-hmm. And so my uncle had some multifamily property and I and I, I just remember like counting on my fingers. Well, what, how many does he have? What's he make? 
you know what? I think I'm going to buy a nine unit with that, uh, buy an apartment building. And I found a nine unit and I had seller financing. And this was before internet and all the classes and all the stuff that, you know, we have nowadays. And so you had to figure everything out on your own. And so then I wound up buying a nine unit. I uh, got owner financing plus a mortgage. I had to do a lot of rehab. So I spent you know, work days as a computer, as in a computer firm. I was in the computer business, worked all day at the computer firm. And then at nights, I would six days a week, I'd work at the building. Friday nights, I'd get to go out, but uh, Saturday and Sunday, I would work all day rehabbing. <laughs> what do you think led you to do that, to, to work that hard at that age? Was there anything specific? You know, my mom's always been a super hard worker. She's always, she's worked a lot of jobs to support us when my parents separated. I was doing watchmaking at 14 years old. She got me into a jeweler and I was doing repairs at 14 years old on, on watches. So I learned early that it was important to work. Um, and I got that a lot, I would say, from my mother. And so, you know, she also had an apartment building before then. And I learned how to, you know, wallpaper and all that kind of crazy stuff. And I've always just been good at fixing things. It just comes natural to me. So that part I'm lucky at. And so that's kind of what drove that forward. And, you know, so that nine unit, you know, after doing all the rehab, I wound up refinancing and then I wound up investing into an 18 unit. And then I, you know, start that process all over. And typically I'd have to buy trouble buildings because I ha- I didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, what I had was the income from my computer firm, which was not bad, but, you know, so I was always using my own capital. And so I fix something up, I refi, pull that money out and go buy another asset, you know, and typically they were troubled assets And the 18 unit. Again, I had owner finance actually on that one. We just took over the note because it was half empty. The building was distressed. And so we went in there and took over the note within a year. Then I was able to refinance it because now you established, you know, there's a rule if you own it for over a year, now you've established, you know, some precedence within that property. And so the bank looks at that as equity now. And so I was able to do that. And I would just constantly do that. So then I bought a six unit and I bought it, you know, and it just kept on rolling in that fashion. And so that's how I started. And in about 2008, um, when I went, I went to the South Side of Chicago. So the South Side of Chicago, is uh, there's some areas that are low income. And I went there because of the deals. And again, I was always, I was rich on paper, but I was poor as far as cash flow. And so that was always an interesting thing. And that's why I went south because I could buy, pick up these units for cheap. And so but we were you know, doing a lot of work. So I picked up a 32 unit. It was half empty. There was a rent strike. Nobody was paying the rent. We had prayer meetings in the basement to try to get the rest of the tenants on board. I promised what I would fix. I told them what I would fix. Uh, But I also found bank at that time, Community Investment Corp, who's still around, and they invest in troubled areas. And so they actually gave me a $100,000 matching grant. If I put $100,000, they matched $100,000, and it was forgivable over five years, which was actually phenomenal. And uh, they were able to give me the loan for the property, and it it worked out beautiful. It was a great match because they helped me buy, I probably was up to about a thousand units at one point. And um, it was all self, self done, no investors, no nothing, just by myself with the bank. And the bank truly helped me um, because I could come in with 10% down because they had energy loans. So they would lend me up to 80% of completed value. Then a 10% would be an energy loan. And so I'd only have to come up with 10% as long as the numbers would match. 
And so it truly worked out. And they're still doing some of those programs today. So it was, it's been an interesting ride. A lot of hard work, but an interesting ride. So let's talk about uh, when you're taking over these properties that are 50% empty and that, you know, there's that rent strike. How did you manage your fear at that point? And how were you able to turn around these properties? Because a lot of people in our community are buying value add, but not many of us are buying 50% empty with a rent strike. Some of it's stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, but I, I guess I saw the end. One thing I can always do and envision the end, what the property is going to look like. I really worked on my numbers. I knew what I could do, you know, and the good thing is the bank, when I would get that loan, that could, they would give me a construction loan. So I had at the closing, you would prepay the interest. So I had no payments for six to eight months on a mortgage because it was prepaid right on a loan. That's how I was able to float, you know, that building being empty like that for a while because I had no mortgage payment for eight months, six months, six months, depending on what I told them my construction would do because we would prepay that, you know, at closing. And so you're obviously leveraging that, right? So I'd only have to pay 20% if you think about it, right, of that interest that was being prepaid. And so it allowed me to get in there. And plus, you know, if they would loan me up to 90%, I only have to come with 10%. And so it, it really worked. There was no other way I would have been able to do it at that time. I, I literally did not have money. Like I said, I was paper rich, money poor. So what happened during the downturn? I mean, because we don't talk to too many investors who invested through multiple downturns. Sounds like you've been investing for a long time. So you've, you've seen the ups and downs of the market. So can you tell us about that 2008 downturn? Multiple downturns. So in 2008 was was a downturn when I was I just started investing in the South Side, and actually it worked out really well for me. Two things I think two things are super important going into a downturn that you're not over leveraged, right? Some of it's luck, but it's also not being over leveraged, right? And luckily, going into that point, I refinanced everything prior, so nothing was coming due. So that was that was the lucky part, right? But there were still guys and gals who leveraged them way too much. And at that point in 2008, as you know, the you know, the feds were coming in, they were writing down values. And so like, you know, a lot of banks were coming to guys and gals and going, listen, you you know, two million dollar loan, but that property's worth 1.5 million, you need to give us 500,000 and we're foreclosing on that asset, right? Even though it cash flowed, everything was perfect, right? But the values didn't meet. And so either you gave them, you know, half a million dollars or they foreclosed and probably sold the note for a fraction of what you owed, which didn't make any sense, but that's what they were doing, right? Luckily, that didn't happen to me at that point, but I did pick up a bunch of notes because of that. There is a lot of fraud going on at that time in Chicago. And so not only were these people over leveraged, you know, there was fraud on the appraisers. So they were taking so much more money out than the, the properties were actually valued. So nobody wanted to try to save them, right? So that banks were taking them back. But at that time, what they didn't want to do is actually take the asset back because it was bad for them to have it on their books. And so they would start the foreclosure process. I go in and buy the note from them and finish the foreclosure process. You know, most of the people, and not homes, but a multifamily, but most of these guys, they, they didn't want them because they were so upside down, it didn't make any sense. And they were more than happy to get it off their back, which was a good thing because it made my life a little easier. But, you know, one case that I really did well, there was an there was an 85-unit apartment building. The guy had a $4.5 million note on it. The bank put a receiver in place, right? So they put somebody in to take over the building. But this receiver was 
not a very good one. So he allowed the building to get stripped. It was on the south side of Chicago. You don't take care of something. The guys come in, steal all the copper. They, you know, they strip the place blind. And so now it was vacant. And another friend of mine who was a banker said, listen, I know what they'll take. If they need to get it off their books by the end of the month, off them 50K. They'll take 50K for the building, right? And I I was in Europe at the time. I called the broker and I said, listen, I'll give you 50K. And he was mad. He goes, no way I'm offering that. I go, you have to. You have to put that offer in. And he did. And they accepted the offer. Wow. So it was the was relationships, relationships with bankers that would allow you to go and get get these notes, it sounds like. Yes, and it, it helped. And so, you know, the property probably, but when it was stripped, it was probably only worth four, five, six hundred thousand. They had a, you know, because it was stripped out, they had a four point five million dollar note. I came with fifty thousand. I I decided I didn't want to rehab that property at the time, so I just kept it clean. I had dogs in so nobody would be around. And I sold it about two years later for about 850000 So, you know, I probably had a couple hundred thousand in to maintain it, back taxes, all the other nonsense. But it wasn't a bad, wasn't a bad deal. But it's also an interesting, it's interesting that a bank will write something off that much, right? That, that's a lot of write-offs. That's almost $4.5 million write-off. Wow. And tell us about this security, because a lot of us, uh, you know, buy properties, we have to turn around and what we're doing and putting in security cameras, a couple people have had to hire people to walk the property, but it sounds like you put dogs in there. Uh, this On a vacant one, I actually wanted to put dogs in it. It just made more sense, right? You couldn't tell it was vacant from the outside because we kept it spotless. The grass was manicured. We kept it nice and clean. I mean, the windows were boarded up, but other than that, you wouldn't know it was vacant. And I think that kept the city off us and it, you know, and people knew that we cared, even though it was vacant. And so I thought it worked out well because the guys who bought it just, it just totally fell apart on them. But yeah, you know, after that, it's out of my hands. <laughs> um, but the South Side or low income areas, depending on where you're at in the country and, and what type of low income, they can be rough. I mean, they're stealing copper, they're constantly, you know, breaking in and stealing things. And so it, it can be a it can be a challenging time. It's, it definitely can be challenging at times. So what do you think were some of those keys to your success to grow so quickly and to do what you did? It was a lot of hard work. You know, there was a lot of a lot of sweat and blood and tears. I mean, I was swinging a hammer with the guys at that time. I had a crew. I was doing a lot of work. I was on a job every day. You know, I think at that time in 2008, I quit my uh, I quit my full time job a little before that. I, I can't remember the exact dates, but to go full time in real estate, the only thing I wish I would have done is, you know, afterwards. I thought a year later after I quit my job, I remember sitting on my bed thinking about something, and I thought about my old job. I was there for 15 years. And I thought, God, I didn't even miss it once, right? And um, and I said, I wish I wish I'd have quit ten years earlier, mm-hmm. right? You know, you know, the only good thing is I before I quit, I had a hundred units under my belt, and it at least gave me at that point enough cash flow that I could sustain my life. But I was young; I didn't have I didn't have much going on. I lived in one of my apartments. I didn't need a whole lot of cash, right? Not like today. Today I couldn't. <laughs> It wouldn't work for me today, but I was I was young and I didn't need a lot of cash and and wasn't buying a lot of things, so it worked out really well for me. So I would imagine that you're getting phone calls all the time and with problem after problem. Is assuming that's the case, uh, how did you manage all that? Well, I was probably up to I managed a hundred units on my own, up to about a hundred units. I was doing it myself. I was actually cleaning hallways, showing units. I mean, I was 
you know, chief cook and bottle washer. And I didn't like that part. I, I don't, I, I didn't mind, but after a while, it's not something that I aspire to do is, you know, vacuum hallways. And I, I slowly hired people to help me. And uh, as I acquired more, uh, we got more serious. I used to use QuickBooks. I got a property management software. You know, I hired a couple of girls in the office. You know, I had more guys on staff. And so I started to grow my staff and start, you know, implementing, you know, a business, a real business. Um, and so then I had a small management company of my own that we would manage these assets. And that's how I started to handle it all because I had guys, you know, but I was still handling calls at night and, you know, it, it can be a pain, but you, but you grow and you learn and you get better. You know, one thing I wish at that point, wish I would have did better was just have better organization within the, or, within my organization, right? Better policies, better procedures. It would have taken a lot more off my back. You know, I think it's, for a while there, we flew by the seat of our pants, right? Everybody did everything, right? Instead of having structure and organization and all that other good stuff that you should do in a real business, right? It's kind of like a mom-pa shop in a sense, but it worked and it works for a lot of people. This week's podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals. Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals is a 10-week online course focused on helping physicians and high-income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cashflowing rentals that will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Our course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the waitlist at semiretiredmd.com and check out the course details on our course landing page. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Movement Mortgage. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. We've been working with Dan and his team for over eight years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close the deal. I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at srmd@movement.com to get a free consultation and also let him know that you're part of the semi-retired MD community to get an exclusive discount on your next loan. Now back to the episode. tell us a little bit about negotiating all these seller finance deals? Because I think going into this recession, we're seeing this happen more and more uh, and not so much the last five years. So what are some of the maybe tips and tricks you could give to our community about negotiating successful seller financing deals? I think first thing first, you need to know your numbers, right? So that you're not going into the deal blind and you understand where you need to be to make the deal work. But trying to be real with the person you're buying with, right? Not bullshitting them, not trying to take advantage. Yeah, we want the best number we can get. That's always the case, right? But, you know, air negotiation, right? Back and forth. I think that helps. A, a lot of people know when you're trying to take from something from them and they're not going to give it to you. But if you're trying to, you know, negotiate in good faith, I think that helps quite a bit. What about if you were to do this again? What would you do differently? Are there any big takeaways that you have over the last what twenty something years, thirty years? Um, you know what? I would I would have a I would grow a better team. I would let go of people that weren't doing what they were supposed to do instead of putting up with it. I was slow to fire. 
<laughs> I would fire more quickly. I would make sure that I had better policies and procedures in place so that we all knew what exactly what we were supposed to do. That I think would be number one. Number two, I would I would bring in investors. Instead of just using all my own cash, I would have brought in investors. I was too scared to ask anybody for money, right? I would I had no problem going to a bank, but I, I just within myself, there was something within myself that I didn't like doing it. I felt like I owed somebody something if they gave me money, which is totally incorrect. <laughs> so that that most of the two things for sure I would do differently. So if you brought in investors, what would that would you just uh, that would allow you to scale and uh, and grow your business? Is that is that it would allow me to scale much much bigger back then? I've uh, actually started to do that now. So I did my first fundraising about five months ago. We purchased a 253 unit apartment complex in Houston, Texas, and so I have done my first capital raise. How long did it take me? Almost 30 years. But you know, some people are a little slower than others. I'm probably the real slow one here, but it, it, it worked out, and we're doing well. So, I also really want to highlight for people that bank relationship you had, so that wherever they are across the country, that they might look for these types of relationships. So, can you tell us how you found this bank, what kind of program they had that you were able to use, and a little bit more detail than I know you touched on it earlier? Sure. So, you know, I was lucky. You know when. The building I bought, my first Southside building, was in receivership. And CIC, Community Investment Corp., was the bank there in Chicago. And so I was able to talk to Angela Morella at the time, was the person I was dealing with there. And, you know, I learned about her programs because uh, I had to go there because the porches, they were doing porches. So luckily at this time, I was getting all new porches on this building and didn't even know it at the time because the receiver was doing all new porches. And so I had to go in and talk to them about getting these porches paid, the, the contractor paid because they were going to pay for them. And so then I, you know, I I found out about what they do. So basically, CIC is a conglomerate at the time. I think it was 47 Illinois banks. They invest into this organization because they need CRA credits, right? They need to invest in impoverished areas because that's federal law, right? So they have to have, so in, instead of these banks doing it themselves, they invest into this organization. Community Investment Corp., which is a nonprofit that then lends that money out and manages the buildings and the construction and all that other stuff. And, and their initiative is to support housing in Chicago, right? So troubled buildings, they they will go and they'll do different things. I mean, there was there were times, you know, I talked about the 10% down. There were also times that they actually bought the asset for me. So they bought the property because I needed to close in two or three weeks. They bought the asset, they physically bought it, and then we wound up doing the note afterwards. So they've got different programs that that really helped me out. And I used it. And I don't think I'd have done half as well, uh, especially with the cash flow I had at that time if they weren't around. So they were definitely a great help for me and many other people in, in the city. What were the criteria that they were looking for? Did you have to be serving a certain like median income or what what how could you know that they were going to be involved in one of your properties? Right. Well they they invest any they'll invest almost anywhere in Illinois, but they're they are looking to save properties in low income in low income areas. So that that always helped me. So if I was in a more of an impoverished area or low income area, it definitely helped my case. 
on getting a loan. And they're looking for guys and gals who are actually going to do the work and bring these properties back to life because that's their charter, right? They want to re you know, revitalize neighborhoods. And so that's what they're looking to do. So, so people could be looking for like a conglomerate of banks from their state that is a nonprofit that is going to be reinvesting in areas that are lower income. And would you go before you even bought the property then to them and say, hey, are you going to participate in this? How much are you going to do? Or did you have to buy the property first? No, I'd always I'd always go to them first and I'd have them look at the numbers and tell me what they thought. Right. So they'd always I'd come up with my numbers. They'd look at the property. You know, I might get it under contract, but I immediately would start to work with them. Right. And then, you know, one other good thing that I would assume it's across the country, I know it is, is there's nonprofit organizations like um, Elevate Energy. And so Elevate Energy is an organization. I know they're in multiple states. I don't know all the states they're in, but like in, in Illinois, we pay X amount of dollars each month on our gas bill and our electric bill that go into a pool for energy savings for multifamily apartment buildings. And so there's organizations like this, like Franklin Energy, Elevate Energy, where they'll go out and they'll seek owners of apartment buildings and they'll do free uh, roof insulation. They'll do free domestic hot water. They'll do boiler controls. Um, they'll do replace old refrigerators, you know, older than 10 years old, you know, or, you know, all for free. I probably have, I know I've gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of, of these incentives for free. Right. And I know the it's across the country and certain states might have more or less, but this is something also that can help people out quite a bit. It's definitely helped me out. Yeah, I think that's that's really the the value that you bring here today is for people to hear all the different options available. I know Kenji's previously looked into the energy one with uh, replacing one of our boilers and one of our properties. But yeah, those relationships with the nonprofit and and other areas where you can get free incentives to make your property better. So it's a better living place for your tenants, I think is really a powerful thing. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And it sounds like you already have you still have contacts in Chicago that are still doing this. And so it's it's something that people can access even now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's helped quite a bit because you're right. It's all about you know helping the tenants, right? Because the better you make the property, the more comfortable they are and the more willing they're to pay your rent and stay. Right. And so it's a win win. Right. Because, you know, I've always thought curb appeal, you know, making a nice unit, even when we're doing low income, we always try to make them the best they could be. Right. We'd always try to clean them every time somebody, you know, leave, we turn and paint and, and clean them up. You know, not everybody's happy. You can't make everybody happy, but we tried our best. So are you continuing to invest in low income housing? Even even more recently, you had mentioned uh, raising money. No, I, I, I'll admit I got a little burned out. It's a lot more work and um, and I've done well with it, but we're moving more to B assets, B and A, A minus assets than we are C assets. I'm not saying I won't do it again, but that's my where I'm looking now. Okay. All right. Well, we, uh, we always close our interviews with uh, two questions. Uh, the first one is, what is your definition of wealth? Oof. Well, I think um, I think that's changed over time. You know, if I was younger, wealth was all about money in the bank. And I was always striving for that. And I was always, you know, my spreadsheets, I always had them open. I knew what my net worth was. But I, I, I think 
as you go over time, it's it's really about family. It's about lifestyle. You know, money's definitely part of it, but it's what you bring to the table, not just money, but you know, who you are personally, who your family is, and how you treat them and 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 what you can pass along to to your family and others around you, right? You know, probably, you know, I've only probably in the last 15 years started donating to different organizations. And I think that's a that's a good thing also, right? To give somebody money away to to help others. And we've also helped tenants out, you know. You know, we've always subsidized certain tenants in need, typically older folks who who couldn't meet the rent criteria, especially when we took a building over because we'd always raise the rents. But there was always one or two that we would just keep their rents low just because we know they couldn't afford it, but they were good people. Mm, I, I know that's really important to some people in our community as well is making sure that they have the wealth to be able to do that for people in their their buildings. So beautiful to hear mm-hmm. that that piece too, because I know a lot of people are doing that. Yeah. Yes. Second question is, uh, what is why mindset, habit, or strategy that separates someone who is wealthy versus someone who is not? Mm. <laughs> I think I don't. I, I love. I, I should say I love money. I, I don't mean it in a sense that sounds weird, but I think money is important. You know, money is important to do the things you need to do to be healthy, stay safe, help others. It's not the only thing, but it is definitely a good thing to have. You know, some people, some people fear money. And I think at times I probably have too, but you know, it's, it's something that will allow you to help generations of your family and others in the future, if you can create it and you have a healthy mindset about it. You know, I don't mind giving people money. I don't mind buying dinners for everybody. Cause when I was younger, I was poor and I have a lot of friends who used to take me out to dinner or buy me lunch and help me out. And so I try to, you know, pay that forward at this point. Right. And so, you know, I've always tried to not be frugal, but I figure if I don't have enough, I'll make it somehow. Right. The kids asked me the other day, gosh, lunch and dinner is so expensive. Pop, what are you going to do? You know, it keeps on getting more expensive. I go, I'm just going to make more money. <laughs> Resourcefulness, right? Knowing, knowing that you have the confidence that you can make money no matter what. And that comes from knowing real estate well and knowing that you know how to make money yourself and you're not reliant on anyone else. And so that that's really important, I think, to us too. Beautiful. It's mindset, you know, just like you. And, you know, we go to a bunch of different, you know, workshops and events, try to set our mindset, right? It's all about up here, right? If this is wrong, everything else is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so if you let the chatter in your head move you, right, you, it's it can be a problem, right? You can't let the anger and all the other things drive you. It's going to be there. It's if you act on it or not, right? Because it's going to be there just the way this nature of the human brain. And so it's, it's, it's up to us not to allow us to act on it, but to do more good than that. Thank you so much, John, for your time and for all the pearls you shared about getting up to a thousand units yourself, which is such a remarkable accomplishment. And we so appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge with us. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Talk to you later. Bye.
The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.